just before Jonathan comes up, I'm going to read the portion of scripture um, from Hebrews 9 that we're going to continue in. Um, So if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, just grab those real quick. Give you a second. We are starting from verse 15 in chapter 9. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So good. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own, for when he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of all ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. I love this. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm just going to pray for us uh, one more time. Uh, Father, as at least we in this room uh, are hearing uh, the gusts of wind outside, uh, sometimes rattle the windows, um, just standing over there being reminded of just your glory and just what your presence must be like. This is just a gust of wind compared to the weight and the force of your holiness and your glory. And we just thank you that because of Jesus, um, we need not fear your glory and your presence and your holiness, but we can enter in with confidence. How good is that? Um, Teach us that again this morning, Jesus. May your Holy Spirit open hearts. Um, May your Holy Spirit use um, my weakness um, to get across heavenly truths. Uh, increase our affections for you today, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen. I'm um, just going to jump straight in. Uh, we're going to finish chapter 9 uh, this morning. Last week we looked uh, at the first half of that chapter up until verse 14. Um, we'll pick it up in verse 15. 
Um, you'll, you'll probably be sick of me saying this, but let me just remind you, uh, the audience of this sermonic letter, um, it's a group of Jews who have become Christians, uh, and because of their faith in Jesus and their association with the church of Jesus, uh, they are experiencing hardships and pressures. There is persecution on the way that is really tempting them to give up on their faith in Jesus, give up on, on the church, and revert back to some form of their old ways in Judaism. And the writer is, is writing to them and, and begging with his brothers and sisters that he loves not to do that um, because he wants them to see that what came before was vastly inferior, that Jesus is superior. He is far, far better than what came before. So let's cling to him. Let's press on in our faith. And really, he's just been throwing at them every theological argument that he has uh, for why Jesus is better. Um, Last week, we saw him bolster his argument by pointing out that Jesus is the much better priest uh, in a much better tabernacle. Um, In these kind of chapters 8 to 10, he's really explaining the superior work of Jesus. We've looked at the superior person that Jesus is, and now look at the work he has done. The work he has done as our high priest um, is, is, is far better than any work carried out by old tabernacle priests. It's really incomparable. Um, he's, he's been looking back on that old tabernacle and that sacrificial system that was put into place to, to kind of ceremonially cleanse the people. Uh, and we saw that although that was a graceful picture that God gave his people, um, it was quite inadequate uh, as far as being able to bring a sinner in to experience the, the presence of God. It spoke of good things. Uh, it's, it spoke of forgiveness and access to God and intimacy with him again, but it could never actually deliver those things. And the reason is because it, it was only a picture of those realities. It was only a shadow pointing toward those realities. And last week we saw that the, the hope of the deliverance of those realities, of those good things, is only found in Jesus Christ. It's only when, when Jesus appears as our high priest that, that all that the tabernacle and all that that sacrificial system spoke of becomes reality. It, it, all of those shadows, those earthly pictures are fulfilled in Jesus. All that the tabernacle spoke of but could never deliver on, Jesus comes and makes possible and he delivers. Um, and he, he showed us how Jesus is uh, the much better priest uh, in, in, who serves in a much better sanctuary uh, he offers an infinitely better sacrifice and brings uh, an infinitely better blessing. Um, I think he made his point m- most kind of strongly in verse 13 in his lesser to greater argument by saying, if the blood of goats and bulls could sanctify for the purification of a person's flesh, how much more, how much better, how much more sufficient is the blood of Jesus Christ himself shed on our behalf on the cross, which purifies not just the external but purifies the deepest recesses of our hearts. Think of that. How much better is his sacrifice? How much better is his blood that cleanses even your conscience and frees you from dead works to serve the living God? What an incredible message, isn't it? What good news is this gospel message that he's preaching to his brothers and sisters and to us today? 
Um, and in today's passage, in verse 15, uh, he's, he's telling us that the reason Jesus is able to deliver these incredible blessings, the reason he's able to, to, to deliver these, these better things is because he's the mediator of a new covenant, um, which is his main point again, isn't it? That, that what came before was, was old, it was inferior, it, it wasn't sufficient, it was just a picture. What you have in Jesus is far, far better. It's the reality of which the old only pointed towards. Why go back to what you had before, to what was inferior? Jesus is the mediator of a new and far better covenant. Um, it, it seems like the author is getting back on track with his subject that he started to talk about in chapter 8, Jesus ushering in this, this new and better covenant. Um, in case you've forgotten in those two weeks what the new covenant is, uh, let me just read it to you again. So go back to chapter 8, verse 10, where the author is quoting from Jeremiah 31. This is what this new and better covenant is. He says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. They shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord. This is his people he's speaking of. Why? For they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So God's in God's new covenant, he's, he's saying, I'm going to place my law inside of my people. I'm going to write it on their hearts. And then he continues, there seems to be two parts of this covenant. There's that part, him entering in and placing his law within us. And then there's this part in verse 12. He says, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. What hope for these people? What, what a better covenant he's making with his people to, to forgive their sins completely, to, to wipe them away, to, to wash them clean so that the Lord remembers them not. This is something that the old covenant really could only speak of. It was only a, a shadow of that reality. And he's saying it's, it's through Jesus as the mediator of this new covenant that I'll finally and fully do this for you. It's through Jesus' work as your high priest. It's through his, his better offering of a better blood that I'll clean not just your outsides, but your insides, your heart, your conscience. It's through the washing of his blood that I'll forget your sins forever. Which actually, when you think about it, it's because of that part of the covenant. Him washing away your, your sins, him making you clean, that it's because, it's because of that part of the covenant that the first part's possible. So it, it, it's, it's, uh, the, the first part is him writing his law in our hearts and in our minds. How does he do that? You read the, the, the New Testament, and it's by sending his spirit to indwell his people. His people. After your sins are, are cleansed and done away with, and you are, you're purified and you're, you're acceptable, he comes and he abides in us, and he writes his law in our hearts and in our minds, and he begins to change us from the inside out. So, so no longer is, is the law something we buck against in the new covenant, which is the way it always was before. The law said, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, and our flesh pushes against that. We hate it. We, we can't help but bend the truth. We can't help but 
take advantage of other people. We can't help but lust. And the law was something we always battled against. But now in the new covenant, God is saying, I'm going to take that law and I'm going to put it inside of you. I'm going to write it on my people's hearts and change them from the inside. I'm going to actually change their affections. I'm going to change their desires. Which is So we're able to now say, well, I have God. Why would I want to murder? I have God. Why would I want to steal? I have God. Why would I want to lie? So in the new covenant, he actually begins to sanctify us and transform us from the inside out into the likeness of himself. What a glorious covenant he makes with his people. And the point of the text today is that Jesus is the mediator of that covenant. Jesus is the one that, that he's the only mediator of that covenant. He's the only one that can, that can pass those blessings on. Um, what is a mediator? We see that in, in verse 15. He is the mediator. What does a mediator do? The job of a mediator is to really to arbitrate, to bring two parties together. Um, the, the mediator comes and he brings two estranged parties and he works to affect their reconciliation. And, and in this case, who are the two estranged parties? You have a, a white-hot holy God who is holy and pure and righteous in every way. And you have a sinful humanity, a humanity who, who rebels against their holy creator God in every way, a, a humanity who pushes against him, a humanity who rejects him, and, and a sinful humanity simply cannot be in the presence of God and live. <laughs> Since the garden, it, it's not possible any longer because sin is in our hearts but this mediator, Jesus, is, is going to bring these two parties together. He's going to make it possible for a sinner to enter in again and enjoy the presence of a holy God. He's going to make it possible for intimacy between a sinful people and a holy God to happen again. He's going to make it possible for friendship with God to be experienced. <laughs> He's actually going to take the rebels... The, the ones who, who, who are enemies of God, and he's going to change them to be the household and the family of God. As the Father's mediator sent to earth, it's Christ's job to bridge that gulf and to obtain entrance for us into God's holy presence. And, and that's what verse 15 tells us. It says, therefore, some, some uh, translations have it for this reason, which I think is a better uh, translation in this, in this sense. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from, under the, from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So really, verse 15 tells us how and why he does this. He's the mediator of the new covenant. Why? So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. And how does he do this? Through his death. A death has occurred that redeems us. That, that, that word redeem is, 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 is uh, ransoms or purchases us from our sins. This is how he brings a holy God and a sinful people into communion again. As he pays the penalty for their sins. And the penalty of, of sin is death. It's his death that, that absolves the people of their guilt. 
It's the shedding of his blood that, that purifies us completely and allows us to be in the presence of God. And, and, and here's what the author is doing in this text. It, it, he's wanting to establish for his audience the basis of Jesus' mediatorship. Well, what's the basis of, of Jesus being the mediator who, who brings these two parties together? And he makes it absolutely plain and simple here. The basis of Jesus being the mediator of the new covenant is his sacrificial death. That's the basis of Jesus' mediatorship. The basis of him bringing together a holy God and a sinful people is his sacrificial death. It's the shedding of his blood. It's the offering of himself without blemish to God. That's what makes Jesus the only mediator. And you pick up on what... um, Did you pick up on what the author says about the power of that sacrifice here? We we touched on the surpassing power of Jesus' blood last week. But did you you see what he said at the end of verse 15 about that again? He said, Christ's death, it redeems them from the transgressions, the sins committed under the first covenant. So not only does Jesus extend his grace and his forgiveness to those who believe and put their trust in his work on the cross since his sacrifice, but he also gives that to those who had faith before. Not only does his, 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 his death on the cross have a, a proactive power to save, there's also this retroactive power in his blood. It, it works both forwards and backwards. It, it covers the sins committed under the first covenant. Um, All throughout this chapter, there's this parallel between Christ's sacrifice on the cross and that annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement, which again is just a foreshadow of Christ's sacrifice. But that that Day of Atonement sacrifice was also retroactive. The the point of that sacrifice was to atone for the, the, the sins of ignorance committed over the previous year. But you see here that the Christ's death is surpassingly retroactive. It reaches back all the way through time to the Garden of Eden. Paul talks about this truth in, in Romans, Romans 3.25. He says, Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to, uh, to be received by faith, this was to, show Christ, uh, this was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. So if you ever asked yourself, what about Moses? And, and David and, and Ruth and, and Abraham, how will they join us in heaven since they died before Christ's death on the cross? That, didn't you just say that those sacrifices before were inadequate, that they weren't good enough to cover their sins? Well, that's true, but, but what's also true is the cross works backwards as well as it does forwards. He's saying the believers are saved under the old covenant because of their faith and their obedience to God. So so remember the tabernacle, those sacrifices were all foreshadows. And their purpose was to represent and point towards Jesus' sacrifice. So so even though the sacrifices of those bulls and those, those goats could never cleanse their sins, they were pictures of what Christ would one day come and accomplish. And it's through their faith in God, demonstrated by their sacrifices, that they humbly acknowledge that their sin required death. Their sin required a payment. Their their sacrifices were not a means of salvation, but they were evidence 
of believing faithful hearts. And to these believing faithful hearts, Christ's blood extended its retroactive power. Isn't that amazing? What a better sacrifice. And then for, for those of us now, we're living on this side of the cross. As new covenant believers, we are beneficiary, beneficiaries of the, the proactive power of Christ's death. The, that death is able to pay the penalty for our sins, both past, present, and future. What a powerful, better sacrifice. And, and, and the writer is saying it's that powerful sacrifice that is the basis of Jesus Christ being the mediator who brings sinners into the presence of God. And then in verse 16, uh, the author, he goes on to explain himself further. He wants to explain why Christ's death had to occur in order to initiate this new covenant, in order to inaugurate it, and why Christ's death had to occur in order to redeem us from our sins and pass on that promised eternal inheritance. Let me just read that section again. Verse, verse 16. Um, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated by, uh, without blood. When every, co- when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book, that's the book of the law itself, and the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. I'll confess this is a difficult passage. Um, It's been probably one of the trickiest passages I've ever had to uh, expound upon. And and here's why. Uh, The word the author uses for covenant throughout this, so you see that in verse 15 and 18 and verse 20, That's the exact same word that he uses for the word will in verse 16 and 17. It's this Greek word diatheke. Um, In your Bibles, depending on your translation, in verse 16 and 17, you'll either say, you'll either see that it's either translated as a will, for a will is involved, this kind of last will and testament, or as a covenant. It's tricky to translate that word because the author seems to almost switch up the way he's using it when he gets to verse 16 and 17. In the other verses, he's almost using it in that religious sense that we know uh, of that covenant to be. But in verse 16 and 17, he, he uses it more in this legal sense, like a last will and testament. I, I'm going to assume you all know what that means. If I want to pass on an inheritance to my kid, I have to write a will. Once I die, that will can be executed and, and those things can be passed on. It's the same Greek word with two meanings. So choosing which one to use is based on the context, and it's difficult. It's difficult to translate the Bible. But as I was reading that this week, I thought, you know what's also really difficult? And I'm going to try not to be heretical here. It's, it it's also must have been difficult to write the Bible. Um, I feel for these men, although they're inspired by the Holy Spirit, who were having to communicate truths about an infinite God to finite creatures with finite brains. How do you do that? (laughs) 
Let me, let me explain to you God's character and his eternal purposes that were written in eternity, but only using limited language and, 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 and to, to communicate these infinite truths to your finite brains. It must have been difficult. And so, um, earthly metaphors and similes are, are, are used to communicate these eternal truths. We call it anthropomorphism. I'm going to explain God to humans using human terms. And I think, I think that's what's happening here. Here's an earthly way to understand this heavenly truth. And because you can imagine the writer, he sees that this new covenant only came into force when this death occurred. And you can obviously see well, that's like a will. That's like someone's last will and testament. And, and then he looks back on when this word was used in the old covenant. And in verse 18, he says that even that first covenant isn't inaugurated without blood, by death. And, and, and the, the tabernacle wasn't even initiated without blood. What does this mean? Why all this blood in the Old Testament? Why does he say that the law required nearly everything to be cleansed with blood? And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Well, you can see how the, the author would say, well, it's about death, isn't it? That there's got to be a death when sins were to be atoned for. You get this in Leviticus 17.11. Um, it kind of explains that. God tells them in, in Leviticus 17, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is, it is in the blood, that is, it's, it's in the death, that makes atonement for one's life. So sin must bring the forfeiting of a life. Sin demands death. Makes you squirmish, doesn't it? But this is what Paul says in, in Romans 6, doesn't it? The wages of sin is death. Now, that's not the way it's meant to be. We're, 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 we're not to meant to experience this, but it's the way it has been ever since Adam and Eve rebelled against God and sin infected the world. Sin demands death. And he's thinking here, if there has to be a death for all this life and blessing to take place, well, that's like a will, isn't it? It's, it's the, this kind of foreshadow and this picture of that. And also, look in verse 15, he's talking about this inheritance and if there's, this, if there's an inheritance that comes from the covenant and, and a death initiates that, that's like a will, isn't it? And, and lastly, you can see him thinking, um, one of the unique things about a will is that you don't negotiate it. A, a will is something that is written for you. you. You don't really have a say in a will as far as what comes to you. That's completely up to the testator of a will, the writer of the will. And, and, and that's how it is with God's covenant. He is the one who writes it in eternity. He's the writer of it. He, he makes the covenant. It, it's, it's his inheritance to pass on. He decides it all. The only thing we do, in a sense, is, is take it or leave it. So in a way, this is very much like a last will and testament, isn't it? with Jesus being the testator of this covenant, of this will. It's through his death that the new covenant is initiated. It's through his death that we are brought in. It's through his death that we are given a great inheritance. 
The writer is using this, this, earthly familiar, this earthly metaphor that we are familiar with to get his point across to help us to understand. But with most metaphors, especially in the Bible, eventually they can come to their end and, and kind of break down. And, and we, we quickly get to the end of this one and we see in a glorious and beautiful way that this is, in a lot of ways, nothing like an earthly will. And, and here is why. Simply because Jesus is talked about in this text as both the testator of the will and the executor, uh, executor of the will. He, he's talked about as the one who writes the will, but also as the one who mediates the will. It's different than, a, than an earthly will, isn't it? He, he's the mediator and the writer of the will. And, and that's when our earthly metaphor just isn't good enough. Because there is no other human being who can both write their will and execute their will. Why? Because they're dead. That's a different kind of will, isn't it? And these, these dual functions of, of writer and executor or mediator of the will are completely impossible except for the one who rose from the dead. Rising from the dead is the only way that you can be both testator of a will and the executor of the will. And that's Jesus. Jesus died leaving the greatest inheritance ever, but Jesus also lives in order to mediate his will. How incredible is that? How much better is Jesus as the mediator of this new covenant through his sacrificial death on the cross? And look at verses 23 to 28. Um, in, in, in that first section, the author's reminding us of the importance of blood. Uh, a, a death inaugurated the old covenant. And, and in this section, he, he begins to contrast again. And, and he begins to, to, he turns to describe to us the surpassing effect of Christ's sacrifice in establishing the new covenant. So a death uh, initiated the, the old covenant and a much better death uh, it, it enables the much better covenant in Jesus. He attempts to show us just how much better Jesus is and how much better the effect of his death is on what came, uh, the, than what came before. Um, in this section, the writer is just reiterating four things that I think he talked about in verses 11 to 14, so we won't go too deep into them again, but they are glorious, so we'll look at them. I'm just going to read 23 to, to 28 again. Uh, thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with, with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place, uh, places made with hands, no, which are copies of the truer things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly, as the high priest enters into the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he, Jesus, would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once and for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He puts it away by the sacrifice of himself. And just as is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, just as, as certain as that is, so Christ, having, uh, having uh, been offered once for the, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sins, 
He did that before, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And so, so the first thing he says in verse 23, he begins by stating that, that this much better sacrifice of Christ brings a better purity. It brings a better purity. Verse 23, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than this. That's a little confusing, isn't it? Um, I was confused when I read that. Are you saying that, that, that heaven, that the reality of these pictures also needs to be purified? Uh, I don't think he's saying that. Most commentators will say that the writer's talking uh, about nothing less than us. So, so think about that old tabernacle. It wasn't just a place for God's presence to abide. It was also the place where humans would enter in and meet him. And again, that is just an earthly picture of a heavenly reality, of what uh, will happen in a heavenly reality. And just as the temple needed to be anointed and purified so that God might show his presence there and meet with his people, even so, the people of God must be cleansed and sanctified so that they themselves can become a dwelling place for God in which his spirit dwells. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. This is the new covenant, isn't it? The, 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 the cleansing and the forgetting of your sins. Why? In order to make you an appropriate dwelling place for God. For, in order to make you a temple, the, the dwelling place of God's Spirit. He cleanses you so that that can happen. Peter says the same thing in 1 Peter 2. He says, you yourselves are like living stones being built up, what? As a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And to be a spiritual house, it is necessary to be cleansed through the sprinkling of the blood. Just like the tabernacle had to be sanctified through the sprinkling of the blood, that, that, that was a picture of what God would do in us to make us an acceptable dwelling place for God. It's the blood of Christ that makes us acceptable to God and makes our presence and our praise more acceptable than that of even the angels. He talked about this. No angel can even call God Father. To, to address God as Abba, Father, that's the believer's privilege alone. That's for you and I alone. No angel was ever purchased by the blood of God's Son, but we are. Jesus his better sacrifice brings a much better purity. Secondly, he tells us with Jesus, we have a better representation. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made by hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. That's incredible, isn't it? As soon as he enters in and he takes a seat at the Father's right hand, he begins interceding for us. Notice the previous section um, from verses 15 to kind of 23, he's looking back, he, he's looking in the past, this is what Jesus has done, but now the author turns and he begins to look at the present. This is what Jesus is doing right now. And what he is doing is he is appearing in the presence of God on our behalf. He's, he's interceding for us. And we saw this in chapter 7, verse 25, because he always lives to intercede for his, for his people. It's amazing. Paul says this in Romans 8, 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus, the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for us. 
What an incredible representation that Jesus is for us right now in heaven. It's, it's infinitely better than what was before. Before, there was, there was an entering in, there was a sprinkling of blood, and then there was a getting out as quickly as possible. Jesus enters in and he stays to represent us. He offers a much better purification, uh, a much better representation. And thirdly, we see he's a, he's a better sacrifice. The, he, there's a better efficacy of his sacrifice. We're talking again about the, the power, the efficacy of his blood. Read uh, 25 to 28 again. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. He says that's not how it is. How it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it was appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, verse 28 says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many. So again, Christ's sacrifice was sufficient. It it, it needs not repeating. It needs not uh, being added to. And and please get this. Him being our constant priest in heaven does not suggest that he is perpetually offering himself. His sacrifice was made once and for all. it's, It's vastly different than that annual sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. And the proof of the the efficacy of his sacrifice is because he goes into the holy place and he stays. He he doesn't need to year after year after year suffer again and again and again. His blood was totally, completely sufficient. Do you know what this means for us believers? Let me tell you a story to, to get the point across. Uh, In a rural village lived a doctor who was noted both for his professional skill and his devotion to Christ. After his death, his books were examined. Several entries had written across them in red ink, forgiven, too poor to pay. Unfortunately, his wife was of a different disposition. Insisting that the debts be settled, she filed a suit before the proper court. When the case was being heard, the judge asked her, Is this your husband's handwriting in red? She replied that it was. Then, said the judge, not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. And Jesus writes his blood crimson letters across our lives, forgiven. And no one can come against that forgiveness. No one can take that forgiveness away. Paul says in in Romans 8 again, verse 33, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Church, the the sufficiency of Christ's atoning death, it's the centerpiece of our salvation. It's the very centerpiece of our salvation that he died once and for all, and we need not add to it, we need not repeat it. It's completely sufficient. Um, And lastly, we see, because of Christ's uh, better sacrifice, we have a much better hope. Uh, So the writer, he's looked backwards 
uh, into the past. Here's what Christ has done. He has looked into the present. Here's what Christ is doing. And now he turns and he looks to the future. Here's what Christ will do. Verse 28, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with the sin, not to deal with sin, but to, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's the better hope we have in Jesus, that he will appear a second time. He comes not to, to, to give another sacrifice, not to deal with sin. He's done that once and for all. He comes to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is that, that parallel again uh, with, the, with the Day of Atonement where the people would watch as the high priest would enter in to that sanctuary with the basin of blood and, and they waited outside breathlessly for him to emerge again, at which time they breathed a, a corporate sigh of relief when he exited out. And, and, and his emergence told them that, that his offering on their behalf had been accepted by God how much better is Jesus than that? How much, if that is true, how much more true is it for us? How, how much more eagerly do we await his promised return? And the difference here is we wait eagerly but with confident expectation. Our Lord Jesus entered into the heavenly sanctuary to appear for us in the presence of God. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. Hallelujah. What a, what a coming of a king and a priest again. Um, my question is, are you eagerly waiting for him? To put it another way, would his return be good news for you? Would his return mean salvation for you, like he talks about in that verse? The text shows us who that salvation is for. And it's for those who have had their sins washed by the blood of Jesus. I know that sounds like an old school preacher thing to say, but it's true. It's for those whom he has put away their sins by his sacrifice. That's who that salvation is good news for. His return is good news for those people. And all this takes is you simply recognizing your need for cleansing and receiving by faith his finished work on the cross for you. It's simply resting in what he has done for you. Um, I recognize that the blood of Christ um, can, can be a stumbling block. Some people see being washed in the blood of Jesus as a gruesome metaphor, crimson hands backstroking in a sea of blood. But I think for the one who looks closely and examines their life and knows the depth of their sin and their lostness, the metaphor is sweet because it means Jesus gave his life for us. That's the difference it's only offensive if you don't recognize the depth of your sin. For those of us who realize the depth of our sin, the need of a Savior, well, we will find beauty and we will find joy in the words of this great hymn by William Cooper. 
There's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying uh, there rejoice to see the fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Would you pray with me as we, as Thomas and Ellie come to sing again? Jesus, we can just say thank you. And a thank you just seems not good enough. But that's how grace works. That's how grace works. That's how your sacrifice works. Is a thank you is all we have. There's nothing we can do to, to earn that salvation. There's nothing we can do to, to, to claw our way into God's presence and make ourselves good enough. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you, Lord, for dying our death, for taking our punishment when you didn't deserve it, for washing us, sprinkling us in your blood, declaring us as righteous, putting away our sins, forgetting our sins, and sending your spirit to abide in us, to change us from the inside out. We can just say, thank you, Lord. We don't deserve your kindness, but how great is your love, Father, that you've shown to us that while we were sinners, Christ comes and dies for us. There's no explanation for that except that you must love us. You must desire us to draw near. How great is our God. Lord, I pray for those who who may not know you. Um, I pray for those who who may find uh, all the talk of blood quite offensive. Um, Lord, may it be offensive in a good way. Only you, Holy Spirit, can open our hearts to the our deep need of you even. I pray you would do that, Lord. I pray you'd convict us. You pray you'd show us, especially those who don't know you, just how much they need you. Just how filthy we are without you. And we do need your sacrifice, Lord. We do need forgiveness. I pray for those who, who have walked with you for years. Uh, Lord, may this fill us with joy. May we remember what you've done for us. May that change us, Lord. Change our affections, Jesus. Make us like you. Lord, may we dwell daily and, and, and just think of how much you love us because of your sacrifice for us. So we say again, Jesus, thank you. May you be praised. Pray these things in your name. Amen.